This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Last week's program, I did some forward promotion for an event that would take place between last week's show and this, which was that yours truly would travel down to the southern regions of our golden state to attend a medical school reunion. It is really hard to believe that this much time has passed. In fact, if someone had been born on the day I graduated medical school, he could now be the president of the United States. And frankly, I kind of wish that hypothetical child was the president of the United States instead of the actual president who is. You know the guy I'm talking about, the guy that you can now buy a pen with, with numerous sayings on it, including this one. I will be the greatest president that God ever created. Yes, when I saw one of those on my recent trip, I, I had to have one. Amazing what they can do with those little chips and modern technology, isn't it? I will build a great, great wall on our southern border, and I will have Mexico pay for that wall. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, we're living in a time when a porno star provides evidently accurate, disparaging descriptions of the leader of the free world's genitalia. We will have so much winning if I get elected that you may get bored with winning. You know, come to think of it, I am getting pretty bored with winning. You know, this really does mark the first time Radio Parallax has used a talking pen as part of our broadcast. And while I do want to get back to talking about this, uh, this reunion I attended, I, I may have to give it some perspective. Maybe talk about it next week. I was very, very impressed with the, the dedication and success of many of my former classmates uh, who have gone out and, and made their mark in the world. I don't mean necessarily that they were out there doing, you know, eye surgery in Bhutan or running the most, you know, successful surgical practice in a town in Minnesota, although we had some of that sort of thing. But actually, I'm talking about people that wanted to go out and just help others in, in, in many, many different ways, including in at least one case, hosting a radio program. And while I, you know, I hadn't ever necessarily thought of, of this, this show as being an extension of a medical practice, you know, I think the case could be made. We've always taken the position on this show that information is power and that you need to have good information in order to make good decisions. And no, I don't know that I can really claim that you're going out there making better decisions after listening to Radio Parallax, my dear listener, but maybe you are. I hope so. While driving up and down the state of California, I had the misfortune to listen for to a few minutes anyway to Rush Limbaugh. And it, it is just amazing what a fount of misinformation this man is. He does not appear to be terribly bright. He does not appear to have any of his facts straight. In fact, it, it appears that he just regularly just makes stuff up. And yet he's on 800 stations while we are on two. Apparently, there's a much bigger market for reinforcing the prejudices and small-mindedness of uninformed people than there is in what we're trying to do here, which most decidedly is to not just make things up. Although I think I, I do have to confess to one little incident in my past where I, I think in, in an effort to um, 
to, to woo a certain woman, I, I did sort of pad my resume. It worked pretty well for a while, but when that space shuttle landed and I wasn't on it, actually I stole that from the late, great Gary Shandling. Anyway, my uh, peer group is not a bunch of blowhards, and we're actually nice, enjoyable people. We enjoy each other's company immensely, and, and I don't think that <laughs> that is necessarily a common attitude that you'll find among, among most doctors looking back at their cohorts that they went to medical school with. That's just my gut feeling. I think I'm going to get out of the business of commenting upon medicine and medical school and doctors and all that, although it's, um, it's a rich field I should mine soon. Today is going to be one of those shows where we just cite random stuff and maybe try to go a little light on current events, although some of the current events in the last week do bear comment on, so we won't completely avoid that. But I think what I'm going to do is snag a book that I've been meaning to read for many years. In this case, Anthony Bourdain's Kitchen Confidential, subtitled Adventures in the Culinary Underbelly. I'm very sorry to see that Mr. Bourdain took his life in a despondent mood last June. He's a great storyteller, a good writer, and he was a heck of a, of a great TV host. His narrative as he went about uh, tasting the foods of different nations were, were just priceless, and, and uh, he's sorely missed. Fortunately, he's left some of his writings for us, and uh, a couple things I just cannot resist jumping into, starting with this. His chapter titled, How to Cook Like the Pros, which he opened as follows. Unless you're one of us already, you'll probably never cook like a professional, and that's okay. On my day off, I rarely want to eat restaurant food unless I'm looking for a new idea or recipe to steal. What I want to eat is home cooking, somebody's, anybody's, mother or grandmother's food. My mother-in-law would always apologize before serving dinner when I was in attendance, saying, this must seem pretty ordinary for a chef. She had no idea how magical, how reassuring, how pleasurable her simple meatloaf was for me. What a delight even lumpy mashed potatoes were, being as they were, blessedly devoid of truffles or truffle oil. Skipping ahead, describing what you need to be a pro. He said, you need, for God's sake, a decent chef's knife. No con voiced in the general public is so atrocious, so wrongheaded, or so widely believed as the one that tells you you need a full set of specialized cutlery in various sizes. I wish sometimes I could go through the kitchens of amateur cooks everywhere just throwing knives out from their drawers. All those medium-sized utility knives, those useless serrated things you see advertised on TV, all that hard-to-sharpen stainless steel garbage, those ineptly designed slicers. Not one of those damn things could cut a tomato. Please, believe me, here's all you will ever need in the knife department. One good chef's knife as large as is comfortable for your hand. Jumping ahead, as you've probably gathered by now, restaurants go out of business all the time and have to sell off their equipment quickly and cheaply before the marshals do it for them. I know people who buy whole restaurants this way in what's called a turnkey operation. And in a business with a failure rate of over 60%, they often do very well. You can buy all sorts of professional quality stuff. I'd recommend pots and pans as a premium consideration if scavenging this way. Most of the ones sold for home use are dangerously flimsy, and the heavyweight equipment sold for serious home cooks is almost always overpriced. 
Stock pots, saucepans, and thick-bottomed saute pans are nice things, even necessary things to have, and there's no reason to buy new and no reason to pay a lot. Just wait for that new tapas place in the corner to go out of business, then make your move. Let me stress this again. Heavyweight. A thin-bottomed saucepan is useless for anything. I don't care if it's bonded with copper, hand-rubbed by virgins, or fashioned from the same material they build the stealth bomber out of. If you like scorched sauces, carbonized chicken, pasta that sticks to the bottom of the pot, and burnt breadcrumbs, then be my guest. A proper saute pan should cause serious head injury if brought down hard against someone's skull. If you have any doubts about which will dent the victim's head or your pan, then throw that pan right in the trash. Jumping ahead into foodstuffs. Roasted garlic. St. Anthony Bourdain, garlic is divine. Few food items can taste so many distinct ways handled correctly. Misuse of garlic is a crime. Old garlic, burnt garlic, garlic cut too long. And garlic that has been tragically smashed through one of those abominations, the garlic press, are all disgusting. Please, treat your garlic with respect. Sliver it for pasta like you saw in Goodfellas. Don't burn it. Smash it with the flat of your knife blade if you like, but don't put it through a press. I don't know what that junk is that squeezes out of the end of those things, but it ain't garlic. And try roasting garlic. It gets mellow and sweeter if you roast it whole, still on the clove, to be squeezed out later when it's soft and brown. And finally, Anthony Bourdain on butter. I don't care what they tell you they're putting or not putting in your food at your favorite restaurant. Chances are you're eating a ton of butter. In the professional kitchen, it's almost always the first and last thing in a pan. We saute in a mixture of butter and oil for that nice brown caramelized color, and we finish nearly every sauce with it. And that's why my sauce tastes richer and creamier and mellower than yours. Why it's got that nice, thick, opaque consistency. Believe me, there's a big crock of softened butter on almost every cook station, and it's getting a heavy workout. Margarine? That's not food. I can't believe it's not butter? I can. If you're planning on using margarine in anything, you can stop reading now because I won't be able to help you. Even those Italians, you know, those crafty Tuscans spout off about getting away from butter and extol the glories of olive oil. But pay a surprise visit at the kitchen of these three-star northern Italian and, and what's that they're sneaking into the pasta? And the risotto? The veal chop? Could it be? It is. Why, I can't believe it is butter. A funny man. I'm glad that they have at least one season or part of one season that will be aired uh, this fall on uh, his further adventures in the food world. I think they don't have narratives for all of them, but you know, but you know, I'm sure it's still going to be entertaining. Anyway, our quote of the day for today's show, and we haven't done those in a long, long time, but I think we have a good one for today's show. Musician Steve Earle was quoted in the Washington Post as saying, every day on earth's another chance to get it right. Anyway, being that we're in a loose-as-a-goose mode for today's show, let's just jump at this point into one of our favorite sections of every program, the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to The Week magazine, for all of these items actually, it was a good week last week for amazing coincidences. 
after novelist Nancy Crampton Brophy, age 68, who wrote two novels about escaping awful husbands and an essay titled How to Murder Your Husband, was charged in Portland, Oregon with murdering her husband. That is an amazing coincidence. On the other hand, it was a bad week for Domino's Pizza, at least Domino's Pizza in Russia, which promised 100 free pizzas a year for life to any Russian who tattooed the chain's red and blue logo on a visible part of the body. It turned out that so many Russians rushed out to get these tattoos that Domino's cut off the promotion after the first 350 customers. And it was an ugly week for having to go with the news that after a flush diaper on an American Airlines flight caused all of the plane's toilets to overflow, forcing passengers to relieve themselves into plastic bags and bottles for nearly six hours. Evidently, a video surfaced showing an indignant passenger asking a flight attendant, what do you mean I have to pee in a bag? And it was a good week for, I guess you'd say, preventative policing, if a bad week for British citizens, with the news that a British police department asked citizens to file official reports of, quote, non-crime hate incidences, unquote, including any, quote, offensive or insulting comments, unquote, that might lead to crimes. Man, that covers a lot of ground, doesn't it? And speaking of insulting or offensive comments, let's talk about Serena Williams. To my shock and surprise, a lot of otherwise clear-thinking friends of mine seem to be regarding Serena Williams's outbursts and all that surrounded it as an example of somebody doing the right thing and standing up for themselves. It is alleged by such persons that Serena Williams was treated unfairly, uh, that there was sexism involved, possibly racism involved, and, it, and that in standing up for herself, she is acting as a role model for young women. Well, it turns out that a regular contributor to this program is quite expert on tennis. And let's just say that he didn't see it this way. A video was sent to Radio Parallax with a nine-minute summary of this incident posing the question whether Serena Williams was a victim or a bad sport. We lean toward the latter description after watching this video, and we encourage you to find this and check it out yourself, dear listener. USA Today described the incident as follows. When Serena Williams lost her cool at the 2018 U.S. Open Tennis Final last week, she was repeatedly penalized by umpire Carlos Ramos in an act of blatant sexism. Umpire Ramos cited Williams for allegedly receiving hand signals from her coach. When Williams later smashed her racket, Ramos docked her a point, and Williams, quote, understandably, unquote, lost it. She called Ramos a thief and asked him to apologize for earlier accusations of cheating. Well, that's one point of view. The Federalist had a different one. It said that Ramos did his job and did it well. After the match, Serena Williams' coach admitted sending signals from the stands. If you check out the video, you will see that it was caught on tape. As for smashing her racket, that's an automatic penalty in tennis. And so, by the way, is questioning an official's honesty, which she did repeatedly. 
Jonathan Lass writing in the weeklystandard.com. And I'm, I'm glad that after doing this program for, I don't know, the last 15, 18 years, we can at least on one occasion agree with something written in the weeklystandard.com. Mr. Lass said, Serena Williams isn't a victim of anything except being Serena Williams. Her career lowlights include telling a lines woman that she would take this effing ball and shove it down your effing throat, threatening another female umpire by saying, if you ever see me walking down the hall, walk the other way. Worse, these outbursts have often occurred when Williams is losing to a player she's supposed to beat. This is not the behavior of a strong woman, but of a bully trying to build an alibi for herself. Sure, I lost that match because I was victimized by the umpire. Many people are arguing that Serena Williams was uh, fingered for bad behavior when men get away with the same thing or worse. Ben Rothberg in the New York Times noted it's just not true that male tennis players routinely get away with bad behavior. The infamous brat, in quotes, John McEnroe, actually was assessed dozens of points and game penalties in his long career, including one full disqualification at the Australian Open. At this year's U.S. Open, there were 23 code violation fines levied against men, but only nine against women. Smashing rackets and abusing officials is behavior that no one should be engaging in on the court, said Martina Navratilova, also in the New York Times. Said Navratilova, we do need to look at issues of gender equality in tennis, but that doesn't absolve any player of the duty to honor our sport and to respect our opponents. In terms of respecting opponents, poor Naomi Osaka, age 20, who thumped Serena Williams pretty good in, in the contest, has been shunted aside and forgotten about in the wake of this controversy, which, which is just wrong. Anyway, we, we don't see Serena Williams' outbursts and outrageous behavior as uh, something to be admired by any stretch of the imagination. All right. I was going to say enough about tennis, but actually I'm holding another article about tennis in my hand. This comes from uh, the New Scientist magazine's July 7th issue, which is worth a sentence or two, I think. piece by Michael LePage said, It's game, set, match to tennis. Noting that as Wimbledon gets underway, fans might be enthused to learn that a mathematical analysis has now shown that tennis's weird scoring system makes the game more exciting than other sports, by boosting the chances of the underdog winning. The article quotes Chris Hope at the University of Cambridge is saying the result is not unexpected, but as far as I know, no one has quantified it. In most sports, what matters is the total number of goals, runs, or points. But in tennis, where players compete for games and sets, some points are more equal than others. In fact, the 2014 study found that in 5% of pro tennis matches, the winner scores fewer points than the loser. But because many players say they save energy by not fighting for every point if they don't need to, this finding doesn't reveal what difference the scoring system makes. To find out, Chris Hope created a model in which each player was assumed to have a fixed chance of winning a point each time they served. They then played hundreds of thousands of virtual matches to see what role chance and the scoring system play. In their simulation, uh, they decided that the underdog would win 16% of matches if you only count the number of points. But with the actual tennis scoring system, the underdog wins 24% of matches, which is a boost of 8 percentage points. These results show that the best player doesn't always win a tennis match. Mr. McMillan notes at this point that clearly this explains all of his losses, in tennis anyway. 
If you're mathematically inclined, do us a favor and check out this study and see if you can report uh, back to us by dropping a line at info at radioparallax.com. The magazine did note that you'd have to play the numbers very cleverly to beat Roger Federer. Mr. Merlin says he would summarize it as follows. It all comes down to who wins the big points. And frankly, I'm willing to accept that at face value, even if I don't understand it. All right, from tennis to news of the weird. Doesn't get much weirder than this. Actor Gerard Depardieu was spotted this last week at a military parade in Pyongyang, North Korea. This occurred just weeks after the acclaimed French actor was accused of raping a 22-year-old actress. Depardieu, aged 69, wore sunglasses and a hat to the event, which honored the 70th anniversary of North Korea's founding. And no, we have no idea how he scored the invite. It had been revealed only a few days earlier that French prosecutors are investigating allegations that Depardieu twice sexually assaulted the actress at his Paris mansion. Depardieu denies the charges and is close with the actress's father and had taken her under his wing, according to a source. And uh, speaking of rape allegations, how about that United States Supreme Court? Yes, evidence has now surfaced, as they say, that Brett Kavanaugh, as a high school student, attacked a woman at a party, tossed her into a bedroom, tried to peel her clothes off, groped her, put his hand over her mouth to, to prevent her from screaming, and apparently was only thwarted in his efforts when his buddy, his buddy in the room with him, tumbled upon on top of the two of them, allowing the woman to run to a bathroom and lock herself in. Now, I would submit that if you're going to make up a story of a sexual assault, you wouldn't throw in another witness, would you? Oh, as we understand that the guy in the other case has written a book about, about being a blackout drunk. And evidently in the, in the book that he wrote about his adventures, I presume as a blackout drunk, he includes one of his wingmen, whom he evidently named Bart O'Kavanaugh. Coincidence? Well, you be the judge, dear listener. It is possible that this fiasco might deny Kavanaugh the nomination to the Supreme Court. Well, he's not qualified to be on the Supreme Court in the opinion of this radio program. So that would be good. Even President Trump and his aide Kellyanne Conway are having to admit that, well, this does need to get a hearing. And both sides seem to agree that, well, maybe more than a hearing, there might need to be an investigation into this. It is sort of weird that an incident from high school um, might derail the nomination of a guy that has so much other great evidence against. Charles Pierce, writing in Esquire.com, noted that President Trump's Supreme Court nominee had to white-knuckle it through an ugly confirmation hearing last week when Democrats unveiled a trove of damning documents from his time as a lawyer for George W. Bush's White House. While Kavanaugh promised to respect precedent on abortion, calling Roe v. Wade settled law, a 2003 memo he wrote suggests he thinks otherwise. Quote, the court can always overrule its precedent, unquote, Kavanaugh said of Roe back then. He also contradicted his testimony from his first judicial confirmation hearing in 2006 when he flatly denied receiving Judiciary Committee documents stolen from Senate Democrats by Senate Republicans. Confronted with emails showing that he did, in fact, receive stolen material with one email labeled spying, 
Kavanaugh said, well, yeah, he received the documents, but he, he didn't know they were stolen. I think it's clear, as Charlie Pierce maintains, that at best, Kavanaugh has been exposed as a highly partisan Republican operative. At worst, he's guilty of perjury. Of course, Radio Parallax has to ask the question, is perjury actually a crime? I was involved not, not so long ago in a little matter of, well, the, well, let's just say the courts were involved. And when I uncovered positive, absolute proof of somebody trying to cause trouble for me, having committed blatant perjury, my legal counsel suggested that, oh, well, that was no big deal. Courts are really reluctant to get involved in matters of things like perjury. So it did make me wonder when you sign those documents that say, I declare under penalty of perjury, whether we shouldn't think of it as more like, you know, I declare, unless my fingers are behind my back crossed, that the following is true, but it might not be. Anyway, we'll see what happens with Kavanaugh, won't we? And I don't want to walk away from our American judicial system without mentioning this particular item. We take the position on this show that when it comes to the courts, anything goes. And while you might disagree, my dear listener, how about this? A Utah woman is suing Tesla for $300,000, claiming her car should have stopped her from crashing into a stationary fire engine. Heather Lomazach admits looking at her smartphone before the crash, but says that Tesla told her that in autopilot mode, the car would automatically brake if it detected an imminent collision. Tesla, for its part, says users are advised to, quote, pay attention to the road at all times, unquote. Yeah, I don't, is that fire engine up ahead stopped? I don't know. I'm not quite finished with this text message yet. No worries. I'm sure the car will save me. All right, let's take a short break. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. We got more in the second segment. I'm not sure what the hell it's going to be, but we'll think of something. No, what you do. 